Hi, welcome to the Face by Alex Pike podcast. Today I have a very interesting discussion with who we call the king of Botox, plastic surgeon Dr. Michael Kane, based here in New York. Hope you enjoy. Dr. Michael Kane, thank you for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Undoubtedly, you are one of the pioneers for using neurotoxins and neuromodulators. What gave you the opportunity to use the novel treatments, you know, so long ago? Like many things, it's a combination of things. I mean, sure, there was a good idea Mm -hmm. and I worked hard, but I was also lucky in that I was in the right sort of circumstances right at that time. So how it started, I'm having a discussion in the residence lounge with Richard Lisman, who's sort of the king of oculoplastic surgery in New York. We're talking about what was new in each other's specialties. I'm a plastic surgeon. And he said, have you heard about this botulism stuff? And I said, no. And he said, well, you know, you can inject it and it weakens or paralyzes. People use that word a lot then muscle. And I said, well, how long does it last for? And I'm thinking maybe a couple days. And he said, oh, like three months, something like that. And next thing out of my mouth was, well, what about the corrugators? What about the frontalis? What about the crow's feet? And about 20 seconds later, what about the platysma? Because it was just being used then for blepharospasm Mm -hmm. and strabismus. But I was in the Manhattan Iron Throat Aesthetic Surgery Fellowship where we're doing these operations every day, and it's a little gruesome, uh, typically during a facelift, but we would incise people from ear to ear across their scalp. My job, believe it or not, I'm not making this up, it sounds almost bizarre that it works so hand in glove. My job was to have the patients frown, relax, frown, relax, raise your eyebrows up, relax, smile. And I would draw where the lines were deeper really where I saw more activity, not just the lines. And then as soon as the patients were asleep, my job was to take methylene blue, which is a temporary tattoo Mm -hmm. on a needle and tattoo those patients through those lines. And I'd put more dots where I thought the muscle was stronger and less where it was weaker. So as I'm doing that every morning, and we're actually taking bits of muscle out and throwing it away. That's one of the main... uh, things of that operation so those lines don't come back permanently weakening people. And that, as you can imagine, that's sort of hard to guess. And you only get one shot at it when you're doing surgery. And so I started injecting people with that botulism stuff in my clinic in the afternoon after talking first to my program director, then the department chairman, then the person who was going to be department chairman. And I knew where all those muscles were. I knew how much I wanted to relax certain muscles. And I just started doing it in my clinic. And I was actually swiping. It was still Oculinum then. That was the brand name. I was swiping it from the eye clinic where the strabismologist was injecting people's extraocular muscles and sometimes blepharospasm patients. And I thought it was like swiping a vial of lidocaine, which is very inexpensive. (laughs) When I finished the fellowship um, and I went back to buy some from the hospital pharmacy, I almost had a heart attack. I thought they were going to come after me for many thousands of dollars that I'd taken. But they were all clinic patients that the hospital charged. So, But they probably didn't charge them enough. We were 
charging them much less than the drug was worth. So you are a plastic surgeon. Yes. And you had, you know, the scalpel at your disposal. Yes. What was the motivation and also the inspiration for being interested in an injection mm-hmm. when at the time for rejuvenation the surgery was the gold standard? Sure. And I didn't really think of it that way then. Mm-hmm. Back then, there wasn't this divide between surgical and non-surgical rejuvenation. Mm -hmm. It was pretty much just surgical. I mean, collagen was around, a little injectable filler, but that didn't change the world, right? It worked, and you could fill little lines, and you could make lips a little bit bigger. It didn't last very long. It wasn't very effective. No, and you couldn't change the shape and Mm -hmm. structure of someone's face. So non-surgical, there wasn't really that divide, but... I thought that this would work. As soon as Richard described what it did to me, I thought this should work and this should be not just some, you know, plastic surgeons tended to think of it as just some silly little thing on the side. Sure. And I never thought that way. I always thought that it was going to change the practice of mm-hmm. plastic surgery, change the practice of aesthetics. In fact, It's what really created Mm. the specialty of aesthetic medicine or cosmetic medicine. That's when it started, not with collagen Mm -hmm. and not what there were some lasers out, not like the lasers we have now, Um, but it wasn't really a thing then. It wasn't something that plastic surgeons were that interested in also. I mean, I started in 2004 in Melbourne and most plastic surgeons employed a nurse to do the injections. It just wasn't something that they really... You know, they didn't put their toe in the water. In many ways, Australia has been a leader in this for the states. The states sort of lags behind what's going on in Australia by a few years. I feel like we follow the Europeans a little bit more with the non-surgical. Would that be right? I think so. Mm. Yes, definitely. Mm. You know, when I first started to go, I started to go to Australia in the early aughts. I started doing this on my own. This was the summer of 91 when I started injecting people. And I knew that it would change everything. Uh, Maybe I shouldn't say this, but (laughs) I was broke. I was massively in debt. You know, I went through medical school. I did eight years of residency. Plastic surgery is the longest residency out there. And I I was really in financial difficulty. And the very first thing I did when I had any money was I bought Allergan stock. Now, I wasn't a consultant then. I had no inside information, but that was one of the best things I did. I've had a little discussion about this with Alistair Carruthers. I'm Mm -hmm. sure you know that name. Yes, of course. We were chatting, and I don't think he would mind my repeating the story. We were chatting, and he said, well, early on, back in those early days, he wanted to be like the really clean doctor. He didn't want to buy any stock, and he sort of regretted it. I said, Alistair, you're preaching to the choir. We were exactly the opposite. So, you know, he didn't buy a lot of stock early on that went and did very well. And in those early papers, when I did start to work for the company, they were still afraid of having someone who owned any stock Mm -hmm. be an author on a paper. I said, that's why it's you and Jeannie, his wife, on all the early papers, and I'm not on any of them. But then again, I had stock. And that's why that split happened. Yeah, wow. Globally, there are several different neurotoxins and neuromodulars on the market at the moment. I've been doing research in the US market and there's currently five that are FDA approved. 
Um, can the market handle this many neurotoxins? I think the market can. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because the penetration of neuromodulators or tox, as I usually abbreviate it, is still low. We still we we know that it's incredibly popular. We know it's the number one aesthetic treatment in the world. We know that patients like it. The satisfaction rate is tremendous for this, certainly versus the adverse event rate, which is relatively low. So people like it, and it's still not truly penetrated. You think it's been around forever? It's growing double digits in most developed countries every year. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of the most popular treatments in my practice. Sure. Uh, it's so effective. Uh, I probably inject more of it than fillers at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, what I wanted to ask you is how are these products differentiated? Um, what makes, what makes uh, you choose a certain product? Looking at the products scientifically, mm -hmm. there are a few little things that differentiate the products from each other. Uh, whether they have complexing proteins or not and things like that. But those things don't really register with the public very much. People don't really care. People like their results. And I would say that the initial four that have been out all are sort of similar. None of them are identical. Uh, and everyone develops or should develop a comfort zone with whatever product they're using. So I use all of them because I'm sort of an injectable person. Mm -hmm. And many of my patients have preferences. Now, are those preferences the result of like double blind randomized trials? No, it's their own experience. But what we're really doing is practicing a little psychology or psychiatry with needles when we're doing this, right? We want to make our patients happy. And there are differences. I don't think any of the products are identical. Mm -hmm. And patients sometimes become very brand loyal. Uh, myself, I like a particular brand. My best friend can have exactly the same dose as me with that brand and it lasts six weeks. Why is that? There are differences between the brands. When you look at them in giant clinical trials, it's, it's hard to notice a little difference between the two. However, we all know that if someone becomes a non-responder to one product, they will typically respond at least somewhat to a different product, even though they're awfully similar. Now, are they going to respond to that product long time? Probably not. Okay. It's probably a limited number of injections that they'll respond to. But it's still, they're, they're not identical, but awfully similar, except for one which has a little longer duration profile. Mm -hmm. As a world authority on tox uh, or neuromodulators, if, if you were speaking to a novice or someone who was beginning their career as a cosmetic injector, what advice would you give them on selecting different brands? I would tell them, you know, it's interesting. If you look at it just scientifically, it's hard to say that one brand is better than the other. There, there's no better. They're all just slightly different. And sometimes, especially people who just start out, become brand loyal mm -hmm. to a company that helps them when they're just starting out. And as far as just starting out, the best advice I can give anyone is to always see your patients back. 
if you just inject people in a pattern or a standard dose or standard where you put the points, that's not going to be good at all. Everyone's different. Everyone faces different. Everyone animates differently. It makes no sense. One of the things I say from the podium all the time, standardized doses and standardized injection patterns are good for standardized people. There aren't any standardized people. These are all bad things. The only way to really get good at this is to see your patients back. I was lucky the first 1,000 patients I saw, and plus this was a very weird thing then. When I would discuss it with a patient, it was usually 45 minutes or an hour. Like, is it botulism? And you would go through all the adverse events and things like that. It was very, very different Mm. world than it is now. So you knew the patients very well, and they were they were always a little bit afraid. Early research, and that's why people people's number one reason for not adopting it early on is that they were a little bit afraid. Mm. And now that's not really an issue because we know long term. I mean, I've been injecting people for thirty two years. We know what happens Mm -hmm. with these people long term, and typically those are good things not bad things. I feel, I love that, that you said that about it's so important to get the patients back. You know, we incorporate always a two-week review uh, in clinic, even with patients that have been seeing me beyond 10 years. And I feel like they really love that follow-up. And, you, you know, if a slight spocking of the brow, that one unit can make such a difference. This is going to sound a little nutty, but I think I'm a little better now than I was last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you always get a little bit better if you're really obsessively attuned to detail yes. and really look at that face. And I go off on tangents sometimes, but that f- those first thousand patients that I saw, I was able to get 810 of them to come back and see me. You know, everyone's busy. People don't always come back. And that's how I was able to get better. Well, I was able to get better myself, but I was able to treat them better as well. I loved what you said at a recent educational event or launch in, in Melbourne about even, you know, sort of hitting the periosteum, um, you know, yeah. too hard can cause a headache. You know, it's yes. those little details that, you know, a month ago, just you saying that made me a better injector. Sure. And we all know people can get headache mm-hmm. after these injections. People can get headaches after any kind of injection. People get headaches for all sorts of reasons. Neurogenic things have many, many causes, right? But if, and this is something people used to say from the podium, go down, touch the periosteum, yes. back up a little. Fortunately, I swear, I've never said that. You can look okay. at old videotapes. <laughs> that never made any sense yeah. to me. The periosteum is a very sensitive thing. Why would you go down and cause someone pain? And so I think headache comes from primarily two things either banging into the Mm -hmm. periosteum, which is not good, or the pain of injection, breath holding, Valsalva, those things cause headache as well. For the very experienced injector, why should they convert to different brands? So this is an interesting topic. And the way I look at it, I don't do any wholesale converting. I don't, you know, talk to the companies and, well, maybe there's a special deal on product B or C and try to switch all of my people. I I just wouldn't do that. I I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think it makes patients happy. I like to keep patients happy. 
When do I move people? Mm -hmm. Typically when they say they're unhappy or they say there's something else they want. For instance, my practice is an unusual practice. It's about a third, a third, and a third. So about a third of my patients are local here in New York. About a third are in the Amtrak. That's our train corridor from Washington, D.C. to Boston. And about a third fly in. Mm -hmm. So the people that are flying in, say from Hong Kong or Seoul or Shanghai or Buenos Aires or even L.A., a longer lasting thing is sort of makes sense. That's something that they want. Somebody who's a few blocks away and doesn't mind stopping by. In fact, we have kind of a nice office. Sometimes people just come here and say, can I use my laptop here? Can I get a drink? And they just will sit here. Well, I think they also look forward to seeing you. Yes. Yeah. It's sometimes a very long relationship. Right. So I would not try to talk them into anything uh, unless I felt, and this is more with fillers than neuromodulators, that something would be more appropriate for what they wanted. Mm -hmm. You know, fillers, there's a wider variety. Obviously, we have some very soft, squishy fillers and some very robust fillers out there. But the toxins are much closer together. Do you feel like the neurotoxin market is uh, becoming commoditized? It's becoming somewhat commoditized. Mm When you look at any market, I think it's helpful to look at things from the top of the market, middle market, and bottom of the market. Not that one is any better than the other, but those those are different markets. And where most of the growth in our thing is, is in that sort of lower third. And in that lower third, a lot of the things depend on price. And those, that's you know, one of the main things that goes through a patient's head. I mean, it's always in any patient's head, but it's, I think people in that bottom third are a little more price sensitive. It just makes sense, right? And so as that happens, you know, it makes sense in some business models to have a string of people injecting that are hopefully being supervised. Mm -hmm. So that that becomes a whole other can of worms is, How closely are they being supervised and do they know what they're doing? Mm -hmm. Of course, there are some people who are really, really good at this at any level. And there are people who are not very good even at the highest levels. But the commoditization is sort of happening in the lower third. And in a way you can, like a lot of plastic surgeons do, they can shake their fist at the sky and scream that that's terrible. Or you can take the view, well, you're not going to stop it. And let's face it, after all, that's where the growth is. And so more people are being made happy. More people are getting treatments that like them. Mm -hmm. That's the way I prefer to look at it. Sure. How does a practice uh, gain control uh, over the patient experience when it is about price? That's a tough one. Mm. There are many different ways that everyone's in competition with each other. Now, I think that's good because when different practitioners are in competition, I think patients win. And that's the bottom line, period. So there's a lot of competition and there are different ways you can compete. You can compete on price. That is a hard way to compete absolutely. because there's almost always going to be someone cheaper, Mm -hmm. right? I I prefer 
to compete in quality. And that's the whole patient experience from when they leave the office and they make their appointment. I typically have a conversation with them while we're still in the room. When I would like to see them back, they come out, make their appointment. They get a reminder, then they get another reminder, then they come in. And I try to do as good a job as is humanly possible each time. I'm never in a rush. I know a lot of people, especially if you're competing on price, the average toxin slot in America is six minutes for a patient. That is so quick. Yes. My shortest appointment is 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And if I'm doing toxin fill, my shortest appointment is an hour. So I, I like taking my time, looking at things. Plus, if you look at adverse events, the faster you go, the more commonly they happen. What about your consultation process? Do you inject on the first visit? I do inject on the first visit, but here's the whole process, the the big secret. So first visit, patient fills out an information form like they would in any doctor's office. And I read that. You know, I don't like wasting people's time. They sat down and filled out that form. I'm going to read it. But when we get into the office... I go through it again. I want to hear it from them because very often they forget something and they will add something in that Mm -hmm. they didn't write down. Sometimes patients get a little angry and they say, well, I just filled that all out. I said, Mm -hmm. I read it, but I just want to talk to you. And what I'm actually doing since I, it's usually about a 90% overlap, what they tell me and what they've written down is I just want to see their face in normal animation. Okay. Even if they get a little irritated at me, I want to see that too. Mm-hmm. I want to see everything. And so while we're having that relatively benign conversation, that's when I make the biggest decisions. What areas of their face I would relax and how much I would want to relax them, which is the biggest thing, biggest decision you can make. Mm-hmm. That's judgment which is also the hardest thing to teach someone. And then it goes from that to my trying to get an idea of their muscle mass. So I have a frown, relax, frown, relax, show me your lower teeth, relax, over and over, almost to the point where that muscle fatigues. If you do it about 10 times, you know, mimetic muscles are not big muscles like in your legs or anything. They get tired. And you can get a very good idea of the muscle mass. And then I think of the muscle mass and how much I want to relax them. And that leads me to dose. And then I pull up that dose and I pull up that dose and each area I inject, I put in individual syringes. I know many people have pre-filled syringes. Yeah, I do that also. Yeah. Yeah, and I like that. Yep. Yeah, because I think it helps you because I, if you're trying to think in terms of units, that's a weird mm-hmm. way to do it. Absolutely. That's not how a surgeon ever does things. Right. So if I've got that little syringe and I've got this much tox or this much yes. tox and I'm looking at that forehead, well, I have to apportion either this much or this much over that surface area and deciding where it's stronger. And that's the final game yes. that you're doing because it's never a predetermined pattern that just doesn't make sense. And I think that's helpful to me because I'm not thinking of numbers. I, I say this one, I just did a teaching course that I do every year for the plastic surgeons in the U.S. I in say, Miami? Yes. Yes. Correct. Yeah. And so I say, when you're doing liposuction, are you saying, oh, I want like seven cc's out in this past? No. You're just looking at it and you're feeling it when you're doing a facelift and you're on the first side. You say, oh, well, 
I want to take 1.8 centimeters out around. No, you would never do that. You sort of see how things go and it's more intuitive that way. Mm -hmm. And so if you were to ask me, as often I'm injecting people live at a big symposium and there are a lot of people asking and someone says, how many units were in that sport? I've got to stop and reverse calculate it because I'm not thinking of units. I'm thinking I've got this much Mm -hmm. or this much for each area. And how do I want to apportion that? For the consumers uh, out there, what would be your advice about choosing a cosmetic provider? I think that's one of the toughest things there is. Yes. Um, I mean, it's a minefield. Exactly so. I I know people who are relatively big names Mm -hmm. and have big profiles. I see patients that they inject and they look terrible and they have problems. And sometimes you will see someone who comes in and they're from somewhere else, from someone you've never heard, and they look terrific. It is the hardest thing. It's the hardest question to answer. I would say if you have a friend and you like how they look, that's probably your best guide. That's your best way to do it. If you don't, you know, most people now go to social media. I know. In the old days, they used to go to their doctor or their primary care doctor and ask someone. I think the old way was probably better. I'm a a tiny social media person. I've just been doing it for a little over a year. And it's interesting. There are some things that are good about it, some things that are negative about it. One thing that's good is most things that you read have some basis in fact. So they're educating people. But you see horrifically photographed before and afters. You can look at someone's feed and every after is overexposed. So their lines are gone and it's just ridiculous. Or they're in a different pose or they're not animating full strength or they're doing something different. And, you know, it's, it's just tough because most lay people don't sort of get that. They almost should have a little course in how to look at before and afters and how to interpret social media. There's so much Photoshop too with the before and afters. Yes. It's so misleading. Once, I mean, I've been doing this since 91. Around 2004, we went from dual carousel 35 millimeter slides to computer programs, to PowerPoint, or there are a few others. And once that happened, I mean, you know in these large rooms at these very, very quote unquote scientific meetings, Mm -hmm. you're looking at Photoshopped images. You're looking at people who've manipulated at a bare minimum, the contrast, but they've done things Mm -hmm. that, you know, if you've got a trained eye, you can see, but you realize most people aren't seeing that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how you can fix that there. You know, I, I don't know how you could police say social media, I, I don't think there's a way you can do it. Mm. Um, and so that's just a little tough. It's a little good for the patients in that it's easy to learn something, mm-hmm. but a little tough in that they may be learning from someone who doesn't have their best interests at heart. I know that's a little harsh, but I think people who don't do everything possible to give the patient the best outcome, that's sort of how I look at them. I feel like in my own practice, 
I've said this before, but I've, I've never turned people away more for the very reason that they have been so overfilled um, and th- there isn't really much space left. And they will go somewhere else and get what they want. Um, do you think filler fatigue is a reality? I think filler fatigue is a real thing. I think tox fatigue is mm-hmm. a real thing. You can have overdone pillow faces with filler and you can have statue faces with tox. And there will be, everyone will have them, patients that come in and they'll be straining and bearing down just to try to get a little motion out of something. And my response is, well, then stop doing that. You know, That's not a normal way for anyone to walk around. And you have to be willing to let people walk. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's different if, say, I've operated on someone and I'm taking care of the family. I really try to sort of talk them off the ledge. Sure. But there will be people, and you can sometimes tell right away, that want a result that, say, I would not be comfortable with. And I started doing this a long time ago, and it works better for people that I know, patients that I like. And sometimes if it's a long-time patient, I'll just go a toe over where I would normally want to go still looking reasonable, still looking good, but maybe not as good as maybe I would like. And I would say, you know, I can, I'll give you a little more on one condition. And that is, you can't tell anyone I'm your doctor. Okay. And that That sort of, that hits home in their head because I wouldn't want them walking around and saying my name. And that usually brings them back right then and there. Absolutely. Yeah, I have said that in the past, yeah. uh, specifically with lips, because I wouldn't want anyone to think I have overfilled lips to that degree, yeah. as it would be embarrassing uh, as, a, as an aesthetic provider. Yes. Yes. I think we've all seen overdone people. Mm-hmm. You can overdo anything. Yes. Overdo tox, overdo filler, overdo surgery. It's easy, easy, easy to overdo things, which just sort of looks terrible and it's so avoidable. Mm. Yeah. The most recent addition to the neuromodulator um, world is Daxify. We are not, we don't have it in Australia as yet. How is it so different? Okay, so I, I should say I'm, I'm a consultant to them. I've, mm-hmm. I've been working on that project for 17 years. Oh, wow. So that, that was a long time, but I'm also a consultant to their competitors. Mm-hmm. So why does Daxify have that longer duration profile? When you look at these drugs, there's an old saying with the science guys, it's the process is the formulation and the formulation is the drug. Basically, you're taking the same bacteria, Mm -hmm. Clostridium botulinum, and you're taking out the protein that it secretes that stops a nerve from telling a muscle what to do. Now, how you get from that bacteria to that thing you're injecting is the process. All the processes these companies have, they're guarded secrets there, and that's their intellectual property because that is what makes their drug their drug. And so what is the process and what's going on with Daxify? There's something, well, there's always the working part, the 150 kilodalton working part of a botulinum complex, whether it's got complexing proteins around it would make that molecular weight higher, but it's the same 150 kilodalton working part. 
daxify has another peptide, and that peptide has a lysine chain backbone. Lysine chains positively charged. We know negatives attract. Most large biologic molecules, whether it's botulinum toxin, insulin, things like that are usually negatively charged. So opposites attract. So those attract each other. And the terminal nerve, the cell membrane, usually has a mild negative charge as well. So it appears, and this would be my guess, this is not the company talking, this is sure. me. I've been along this journey for a while. And actually, I thought this up when we were still doing the topical program about 10 years ago as to why it didn't spread. And so I think there's that slight negative charge on the terminal nerve. There's the peptide that's positively charged. It wants to go there. And then it holds perhaps the botulinum there a little bit longer mm -hmm. so that it sort of overwhelms that terminal nerve. And that's where I believe the duration comes from. I wanted to ask you um, also, what was the most controversial presentation of all time about? <laughs> so I, I've been giving this one a little bit recently. Yes. And I like it a lot because I sort of don't like the same old thing. I'm sort of a born contrarian, but you can't be a contrarian just to be a contrarian. You have to have something to back it up in a reason that you don't like things. When I first started injecting that summer of 91, I was conscious of where the levator palpebrae is. That's the muscle mm -hmm. in the superior orbit that actually lifts up your eyelids. It's sort of like if you think of your eyelids as garage doors, that's the garage door opener. But your forehead's an accessory garage door opener. And I always wanted, obviously, to form a physical seal when I was injecting to prevent any tox from drifting back there. And I think it's incredibly unlikely that it drifts back there. Okay. However, I thought I'm a little bit of a procrastinator too, and I'm traveling and have a busy practice. So I get behind in things that I want to write up. About six, seven years ago, I was going to write this up because I have some real data mm -hmm. as far as this. And I said, well, let's do a little literature search on PubMed. And I spent a couple nights reading the abstracts and I would guess right then there were about 500 articles that said the reason that you can occasionally get a droopy eyelid after mm -hmm. tox is that tox seeps into the levator palpebrae. I think that's completely wrong. Mm -hmm. So now with the proliferation of journals, which has exploded in the last few years, I would be surprised if there weren't a thousand of those articles. And it's something you will hear at every single meeting you go to and I'm of the opinion, and I believe I can prove it, that that is 100% wrong. And some people will try to hedge their bets and say, well, a little bit, a few of them lose compensation when some tox gets in the frontalis and they had a little underlying tosis. And that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that nearly everyone has that. Almost nobody gets tox in their levator. And the other part of that is, and the people that do get tox in their levator, I think it's mostly due to an intravascular injection. That muscle is very far back. I think most injectors are not these terrible people that are putting needles back in the orbit. Mm -hmm. We're all very aware and very afraid, and rightfully so, of a filler injection being an intravascular injection. Of course. 
Why are why do yeah. we ignore it when it comes to tox? It doesn't make sense. Plus, where you inject tox right into the muscle of the corrugator, the superorbital and supertrochlear arteries yeah. go right through there. When you're injecting filler, that's usually not the plane you're in. It shouldn't be the plane you're in. So I think, if anything, intravascular injection with tox is probably more likely. And when you do get one of these very, very rare people, and there are different ways you can measure how their eyelid moves, and you can see that there's a little tox in the levator, I think that's from an intravascular injection overwhelmingly. But again, the overwhelming number of people that get a droopy lid are people whose levator muscle gradually disinserts over years. So their lid would be coming down a little bit, but it happens so slowly. Mm-hmm. It's like a molecule mm-hmm. at a time, that disinsertion, that their forehead compensates for it. So they've never really seen that droopy lid in themselves. However, then when even you just get a little tox into the forehead and those people, that's where they get their droopy eyelid from, mm. not from tox going into the levator, which is what everyone says. But I fought against these conventional wisdom things for a long time. For decades, we heard, or at least I heard, tox for the upper face, filler for the lower face. Insane. Again, completely backwards. If you look at how the face Mm -hmm. ages volumetrically, where does the face lose the most volume as you age? From the upper face. face, It's the inverted triangle. When you're young, you're wide up top and narrow below. And as you age, it gets wider at the bottom. And this is why I always say, you know, these younger women that come in, I've said this many times, and they really are searching for that perfect jawline. Then they go to the injector and they put, you know, three mils per side in, and then the after photo looks great at the time. And then they end up looking like more like a soccer ball. And the after photo looks great if you're concentrating on one thing, yes. it's the forest for the trees. Exactly, You can make that jawline look good, but if you're putting three cc's mm-hmm. in there, you're probably doing something so long-term heavy. that's not going to look great. Absolutely. Yes. yes, I am a big fan of using the minimum effective dose mm-hmm. or the minimum effective volume to get what I want. I, I like small volumes. I'll say all the time, like, oh, And that eyelid, I I put like 0.08 or 0.09 and people look at me like I'm nuts or making this up and I'm not. That's one of the reasons I like tiny needles. It Mm -hmm. helps as a chokehold so that you can dribble out minuscule amounts and that gives you more control, whether it's tox or fill. Another really popular treatment is a neuromodulator in the masseter uh, for facial slimming. Women that come in who are early to mid 40s asking for that treatment and have already started to get you know a slight jowl it's very hard to explain to them that this is not the treatment for them can you explain that absolutely so the masseter is the muscle here on the jaw and when you bite down hard that's the muscle that you can feel bulge here you also feel the temporalis the muscles in your temple bulge that's how your jawbone works and that's how you grip we know that with repeated injections, tox can give you a little muscle atrophy. However, even with one injection, we know from Alan Scott's early animal studies, and basically from masseter, even with one injection, you're getting a little reversible atrophy. Mm -hmm. When you think about it, everywhere else in the face, the effect of tox is because you're losing tensile ability to pull things together. Not so in the masseter. 
And the masseter, you get your effect by seeing decreased volume or true muscle atrophy, even with one injection. So you may want to narrow your face. However, that can be a little dicey in the right person because one of the things that ages people over time is that loss of a clear jawline. Mm -hmm. When you look at someone straight from profile, which is a view patients normally don't see of themselves, an aging thing is sort of when the face sort of melts right into the cheek and there's not a little shadow break there. So if you're injecting to slim that lower face, you can lose a little bit of the jawline there. And it's, you might think it's gilding the lily or being a little over, can, overly controlling, but in many people, I'll inject a little toxin the masseter up higher where the bulge is that they don't like. And knowing what's going to happen, a minuscule amount of filler right along that jawline, even if it's barely any volume at all, just to create a break in normal lighting situations. Mm-hmm. With the neck, it's one of the most commonly asked for or concerns for a patient is the aging neck. And we find even patients that visit us um, post facelift, you know, five to 10 years are still having a neuromodulator in the platysmal muscles. Can you elaborate on that for me? Absolutely. Just because you have surgery does not mean that neuromodulators or fillers are not in your future. Mm-hmm. I told patients, as soon as I put that last stitch in and your facelift, you start aging again, right then and there. In the neck, there are lots of different things you can do in the neck surgically. Oh, 35 years ago, it was the trend, and trends are usually bad in medicine, to slice that muscle all the way across so that you didn't have bands pulling right down. The problem is when you slice that across, the front part of the muscle sort of slides up because there's nothing tethering it back. And then you can get premature aging of the neck with the submandibular glands and Mm -hmm. heavy fat vessels and nerves sort of sagging. That same sort of effect can happen, I believe, more quickly if you overly tox the neck or the platysma. The platysma does something. Mm -hmm. It's not something you can just wipe out with a big dose of tox. I think that's terrible. And even if the patient likes it initially, long-term, that's bad for them. Mm -hmm. However, if you keep your injection in the neck just to the bands, which you don't profile, all those bands do is pull your neck skin down, but you leave most of the platysma there to support the deep structures and you go after the depressors of the lower face, like the DAO Mm -hmm. or triangularis. If you inject people like that regularly, I just had a patient of mine who's been one of my 31 or 32 year patients. She's now 71. And she said, well, I'm thinking about getting a facelift uh, before while well, I'm still healthy. You know, I have no medical problems. All of my friends had one. She says, but I don't think I, I don't think it would really do much for me. And I said, it wouldn't. Uh, I mean, if you go down Park Avenue and mm-hmm. see 10 plastic surgeons, they, you will probably get someone who's, of course. who really wants to do that operation. And I said, no. And I think that was from toxing her regularly in the platysma, just the bands, and in the depressors of the lower face. Mm -hmm. Do that regularly. And those people do not age normally. They age better than their peers. Mm -hmm. 
But if you really blast that platysma, you lose support and I think you prematurely age that neck. I like to go a bit easy with the first dose and really concentrate on the bands and then get them back at even three weeks and then you see the bands that are working harder and then have that sort of secondary treatment. Would you think that that would be a good approach? I think that is an excellent approach, especially in the neck where you will get compensatory banding, right? First few people I injected, I didn't start the neck till like the next year. I wanted to make sure I had everything down because there's important stuff in the neck. I didn't want any drift. So I, I waited like half a year before I started injecting the neck. And then you start with just the primary bands. You know, if you're doing something new, I think it makes sense to mm-hmm. go be cautious sure. and try to protect the patient. But when you do just the primary bands, you'll notice their secondary bands aren't just what they were before. They tend to be more than they were before. Yes. Because the simple game with tox is what I described before where You look at someone, you describe in your head how much you want to relax them, what your dose would be, and and how you apportion it, and then you're relaxing them. That's sort of the beginner game. Mm -hmm. The more advanced game is knowing that you're doing that, how are the muscle segments you don't inject going to respond by compensating and pulling harder? And for me, that's how I get sort of a max brow lift, which is something a lot of patients Mm -hmm. ask for. Mm -hmm. And you can go after all the brow depressors, but I'm going to say something again that sounds paradoxical. I think a partially weakened frontalis is a stronger elevator than a full strength frontalis Mm -hmm. because you can manipulate the frontalis that's right over the brows to actually pull harder. Sometimes it's your friend in secondary platysmal bands. Sometimes it's not your friend. Mm -hmm. What is next for Michael Kane? Next things, I still love injecting. I still love operating. I still love teaching. I like writing papers. I'm reviewing a lot of papers mm-hmm. now. I find in the, sort of the winter of my years, I'm becoming sort of a, a rough reviewer and commentary person on a lot of papers that I read. I like doing that. And I'm also, besides the legacy companies that we talked about, I'm part of about five or six startups. So I've always got something new going on. And I wouldn't want to give up any one thing Mm -hmm. in that category. And I still do the occasional clinical trials. Mm -hmm. I don't want to become a big study site. I don't do two or three at a time. But if one makes sense, and especially if it's an idea I brought to a company, and they're going to do that trial, I, I like to be a part of it. There's boxes of data in a, a room somewhere in someone's apartment somewhere for you to go through. Exactly. And in that 100-page contract you sign when you do a clinical trial, there's always a clause about how long you have to keep the concrete paper records. Sure. Even though everything's electronically entered, they still want that backup. And it's usually something like seven years or 10 years after so. Uh, whenever I retire or very far in the future, whoever takes over is going to take over a room filled with boxes and boxes of papers and data and photos. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Michael Kane. It's absolutely my pleasure. And it's so nice to see you here in my hometown. Thank you. <laughs>